Fancy a nice chilled glass of white wine or maybe a robust red with the Sunday lunch? It's English Wine Week and some of the best comes from Lincolnshire. A nice lobster or a dressed crab or some king prawns or some beautiful salmon in a nice glass of wine. Superb. We'll speak to Bill Hobson of Summerby Vineyards shortly and intelligence is always useful, even if it's artificial. Are we ready for the robots and are they up to the job yet? It is now inevitable that we have to find new methods to sustain this increase in uh, productivity. Kasia Gavazadeh, Research Director at ID TechX, joins us from Germany on the Farming Programme today. The Week in Agriculture. This is the Farming Programme with Steve Orchard. Hello, hope you're well and relieved there's some rain around and temperatures looking a little bit more sensible this week. We'll have the week's weather forecast at the end of the programme as usual. I'm Steve Orchard, welcome. Uh, Before we uncork the English wine, a quick look at the week's farming headlines. Lincolnshire Show went online for the first time last Wednesday. Was it the success the society hoped for? Jane Southall, CEO. Oh, it was fabulous. We've had great feedback and we had over 60,000 views. And 10,000 people actually sort of stayed on the site during the day to watch the whole event. We wanted to keep the show alive and obviously wanted to do something for the people that already support it, which we need. But actually, one of the reasons for the online platform was actually to show people who've never been to the agricultural show or any agricultural show just to see what it's all about. And and that was really important. And I think that's what we've achieved by looking at at the people that are viewing it. And how long is that likely to stay up online for, Jane? Well, we thought we'd stay online for about a week. The reason why we didn't announce it in advance was we wanted the majority of the people to be share it with us on the show day of the Lincolnshire show. But we always thought we'd leave it so actually to get maximum value and also for the exhibitors so that people can see uh, what, what we do at the show and, and give them maximum benefit from it. So it'll be there for at least a week at the moment. Great stuff. And that's still at lincolnshireshowonline.co.uk. Yep. Yes. Did you go? What are your thoughts on online shows? Do let me know via the website or the app. Nominations are open for the Dairy Industry Woman of the Year Award. If you know someone who connects with the industry and the public, inspires you or others and shares their experience and knowledge, you can nominate them by downloading a form on the Women in Dairy website. Closing date is July 31st. And as a reminder, you've only until Tuesday, June 30th, to apply for the NFU Serial Development Programme, a brilliant opportunity to gain a better insight into the cereal supply chain. It's run jointly by the NFU and Openfield. There's more details on either website. Morrison's has launched a lean meat box to help consumers looking for an affordable, low-fat, healthy supply of meat. And the good news is that all the meat is produced by British farmers. And finally, Arla has announced another drop in milk prices to 29.26 pence per litre and 37.62 for organic. If you have an item of news for the farming programme, do get in touch through the website or the app. Now, if you fancy a glass of wine with lunch, what's it to be? A nice Bordeaux? Perhaps a hearty Rioja? What about something from Lincolnshire? English wine has gone from being a bit of a novelty, looked upon with some amusement by the big players, the French, the Spanish, etc. But it's far from that now. It's English Wine Week this week, and Bill Hobson, owner of Summerby Vineyards, joins us today. How long have you been growing grapes and producing wine, Bill? 16 years now. Yeah. What prompted you to, to start doing this? I went and uh, took my wife across to pick up a Mercedes to Germany, um, um, her new car. And we travelled back through the Rhine. 
and we stayed at a little village which was very much like Summerby, which was in the back gardens sort of growing grapes. And I said to my wife, does this remind you of anywhere? And she said, yeah, it's like where we live on an escarpment. It's absolutely beautiful. And I said, I wonder if we could. And that's what we did. We came back and bought a few and tried it. And it, it was a great success. What were you doing before that? Um, I've been a fish merchant for 49 years. Oh, right. So a, a slightly a different direction to go in. Yes, but by don't they go well together? <laughs> fish and wine, absolutely. A, a, nice, a nice lobster or a dressed crab or some king prawns or some beautiful salmon and a nice glass of wine. Superb. <laughs> Stop it. <laughs> you're making me dribble now, which is yeah. which is not a good idea on the radio. Your vineyard, you're at Summerby. Can, give me a bit of an idea of what you've got there. How many vines? How big are we talking about? Uh, 10,000. Is that big or small? Uh, or? No, but it's, it's, it's a fair size. I mean, say some of them have got, as you probably appreciate, of hundreds of thousands. You know, people like Chapel Down, these kind of operations. We're just on 17 acres of land uh, where they're talking about probably 500 acres. And when you get into France and Italy, you're talking about thousands of acres. So they will be producing millions of bottles of wine per year where we are producing anything between about 15 and 20,000 per year. Well, it's still a fair few bottles of wine. It's not exactly a sort of cottage industry, is it? Uh, No, and our best customer for this, we sell into Waitrose. Ah, excellent. Okay. How big is the English wine market? It's growing spectacularly. I mean, 20 years ago, I think we were all laughed at. Now there's some serious stuff that in blind tastings, the English wine is far ahead and superior, and particularly the sparkling wine. It's even being judged now better than champagne. Why is that, do you think? Well, I think it's just uh, the climate here. I think it's the soil that we grow on. I think it's the investment. I think it's the knowledge which has been put into it. People have been making a sort of a serious attempt to make excellent wines, and they've just got there now. We talk about climate. You tend to associate vineyards south of France, lovely hot, sunny weather. We, We have, to put it politely, an unpredictable climate. Is it more prevalent, the, the, the English wine uh, growing industry, in the southeast of the, of the country? Yes, I mean, so they will be a, a degree or two higher than us on a regular basis in terms of temperature. Um, so that would be the real choice of the place to go in the first instance. You know, Kent, uh, Sussex, Hampshire, those, Dorset, those sort of areas, they, they just have a better chance than we do, and particularly for frost, which is the big killer of vines. And how's the soil in Lincolnshire for you, for the vines? Well, where I am, I'm, I'm on this escarpment, which is between Brig and Caister, which is absolutely beautiful. And bear in mind, up the hill from me, sort of six miles away, um, the Romans would have been growing grapes and making wine there 2,000 years ago. What kind of wines are you producing at Summerby, Bill? Well, we've got um, a rosé from a region grape, which is superb. We have a white wine from a Solaris grape, and we have a red wine from a Rondo grape, and we're just into the fizzy now. We've got some Pinot Noir, which is our second year, and we're going to start to make some fizzy wine. We can't call it champagne, but we're we're looking for a name for it, something that people will recognize. So we're going to have sort of four different types, a, a dry white, 
uh, a dry red, a dry rosé. They're all dry wines, and we will have a fizzy next year. If somebody was thinking of starting up like you did sort of 14, 15 years ago, is it a lot of investment or is it just mainly time? Now, it's a lot of investment, uh, a lot of machinery. We do everything here. Of about the 500 vineyards around the country, um, there's probably only about 50 that do what we do, which is grow it, pick it, make it, bottle it, wood it, store it, label it, the whole thing. A lot of people, even Her Majesty down at Windsor, she grows grapes, but she sends it out to be made. Right, so you do the whole thing all on the yeah. site at Summerby. All on site at Summerby, and there's not many of us, probably no more than about 50 in the country doing that. So where next for the English wine industry? Well, it's only going to grow, it's only going to improve, it's only going to get better. And some of these larger companies are sort of investing millions into it. And you may have heard that Tattinger have bought a vineyard down in Kent. So the French are looking at us seriously as serious contenders and competition, and they want to be in this market. So it's only going to grow. It's only going to get better. Um, One of the last little things hmm. just to mention to you, if you want to mention it or not, but we've also got the harvest at risk this year uh, as a result of the migrant labour drying up yes. under the strict international travel restrictions. So we are going to be seriously looking this year for labour to come and pick the grapes, which will be end of September, October. And prospects at the moment don't look very good. Where would you normally get your workers from and how many are you short? 10 or 12. We normally get them from an agency in Lincoln uh, who supplied them in the past. Uh, but at the moment, they're saying to me, you know, we can't get them. Uh, they're very, very scarce. If any are coming over, they're going down to Spalding in that area to pick vegetables. Um, I don't think we can help you out this year. Right. So if we've got somebody listening who's looking for some work over the summer, could they contact uh, you? Well, in actual fact, it's a very short season picking, only a couple of weeks and that's it. That's a problem. Well, Bill, good luck with that, obviously. And thanks so much for joining us on the farming programme this morning. That's lovely. Bye-bye. Well, after, what, three weeks of wetter weather, which we desperately needed, the sun has returned with a vengeance this week. Looking tanned and lovely with agronomy, here's Sean Sparling. Morning, Sean. Yes, morning, Steve. Well, I mean, they call it flaming June, don't they? You know, three consecutive days in excess of 32 degrees. Absolutely stifling out here. Oppressive out in the field. I've been stripped to the waist walking fields this week. I've had some funny looks, but, you know, it gets my legs nice and brown, so I don't pay too much heat. But things are bleeding out here in the field everything from spring barley to all seed rape so we will start with all seed rape we haven't talked about rape for a while don't just assume that because these crops are turning and bleaching that they're ready for pre-harvest applications of glyphosate you need to get out into the field and just have a look because the seeds aren't turning even though the pods are bleaching go into the middle of the raceme take the middle pods from the raceme and have a look inside them if there are more brown than green then they're probably about right for applications of glyphosate the seeds in the top pods will still be mostly green with the odd fleck of brown in them 
the seeds in the bottom pods will be a, an equal mixture really of brown and black but there won't be any green in them so it's those middle seeds in the middle pods you want to be looking at if the time's right then go but from what i'm seeing i'm a good 10 to 14 days away from pre-harvest applications anywhere in my oilseed rate they are bleaching they are not turning peas botrytis gray mold micasrella mildews in general this weather is perfect thundery blighty weather all of those things you have a microclimate in the bottom of a pea canopy on wednesday afternoon it was 32 degrees at four o'clock in the afternoon as an air temperature on the floor in the base of my pea canopy it was 45.6 degrees it's like a little rainforest down there that's why you want to be spraying a protectant fungicide like azoxystrobin for example coat the petals so that when they fall the diseases don't have any opportunity to enter through that rotting petal if it were to stick to the base of those crops and with the thundery conditions we've ended the week on obviously those that microclimate will become more of an issue as we move forward finding aphids still in the pea crops pea aphids not at threshold from what i'm finding pea moth way too late to be thinking about treating pea moth that's an earlier season thing to be treating but there are odd grubs mostly on the outsides of fields as i'm looking so just check that little handful of peas before you chuck it in your mouth we always used to say there's only one thing worse than finding a maggot in a pea and that's fine and half a maggot in a pea. Um, spring beans, the rust is starting to move in now. If you've got to go out and spray, and if you're putting an insecticide in for brookid beetle, remember two consecutive 20 degree days. Well, every day is a, a 20 degree day at the moment. You have brookid migration. We tend to find more significant issues with brookid beetle damage in a hot, dry spring like we're finding here. So, you know, you can only do so much. Keep your fingers crossed. But if you do have an insecticide in, please spray late evening or early morning to protect those bees which are foraging out there in the flowering crop and make sure the product you're using is safe to use in a flowering crop spring barley largely done now it's starting to bleach out there in the field as well that flag leaf's really taking a hit in many cases but the disease levels are relatively low um, spring wheat t2s t3s even going on out there in some field if you've applied your t2 fungicide and it was prothioconazole based for example and you've managed to apply it to an already emerged ear on spring wheat it's very questionable as to whether you need to put a t3 fungicide on beyond that because there's already prothioconazole on there if the fusarium decides to attach in these um, thundery conditions then there is already a fungicide there to deal with that so speak to your advisor and make sure you're doing the right thing and also make sure that the label is safe to be applied on some of these crops because they do have cutoff timing speak to your advisor about that there are aphids locally in spring wheat fields so check the ears two ears in three after flowering is your threshold for treatment sugar beet very variable weed control we've talked about this before but not grass fat hen willowweed pale persicaria black bindweed been very difficult to control because we haven't had the benefit of those residual herbicides thanks to the dry and the oppressive heat has evaporated things very very quickly uh, grass weeds, still grass weeds to take care of in patches and around the outsides. A lot of people have been concentrating on the broadleaf weeds as we've gone forward, and rightly so. But pick the right day. Don't, out, don't go out in temperatures above 23 degrees because they just won't work. The grass weeds will lock down, particularly in higher temperatures than that, and you simply won't get a good effect. And if you think if you're spraying 100 litres of water, that's 10 millilitres per square metre. Of that, 0.05% is likely to be an active ingredient 
So protect that bit of water. Don't go out in the heat. If it evaporates, you've lost all your active and you're wasting your time. Ladybirds everywhere, though, by the way, out here in the sugar beet. And I learned something this week. A collective noun for ladybirds is a loveliness. Isn't that fantastic? Um, the Lincolnshire Show was a virtual online thing this week. I enjoyed it. I went on. I was involved in the thing in the morning. Looking forward to hearing how that went. And just remember, potato blight. I don't want to bang on about it, but the weather is perfect for potato blight. Keep up those doses. Weed control has been pretty good. Keep those intervals to seven days. But if you have got weeds that are coming through late, there may be an opportunity to put more metribuzin on if the variety is safe. There may be an opportunity to put something like Titus on. Again, if the weed spectrum is suitable for Titus. But speak to your advisor and make sure that you're treating it so that the crop will be safe from whatever you do. So uh, just before I go, a very, very good morning to Tanya Lee and her boyfriend from down there in Rutland. They got in touch with me this week. Very, very much appreciated. We'll stay in touch now. So I've learned an awful lot this week. Let's see what we learn over the coming seven days. Sean's back at the same time next week on the Farming Programme. Thanks as always, Sean. Are we ready for the robots? Not the Doctor Who variety, but agricultural AI. And are the robots up to the job yet? We'll hear from ID TechX's research director, Kesha Gavazade, in a moment. And Kit takes a look at the markets and prices. The Week in Agriculture. This is the Farming Programme with Steve Orchard. Productivity of farms has increased. We know that, but at the same time, the number of people has reduced. So we're making good use of technology. But are we making the best use of what's available? What is available? Can the next generation of robot help in the development of farm efficiency? Kasia Gavazade is the research director at ID Tech X and is on the line now from Germany. Kasia, good morning. Things improve all the time on our farms in terms of productivity, but are we a bit behind the times compared to other industries? Do we need new tech to help us? I think it is now inevitable that we have to find new methods to sustain this increase in productivity. And I think, you know, our assessment is that uh, robots, automation, uh, and you know, a, a part of which would be AI, would play a very significant role in that. So, so far, really, we seem to have automated our existing mechanical uh, equipment rather than gone down the route of AI, artificial intelligence. Would that be right? Uh, well, we have, we, we're using mechanical power as opposed to uh, automation power in the most cases. I think uh, there, is, there is very little intelligence in the machines that we employ today. But one thing that has happened in, in the past, uh, you know, let's say a decade or so, is that there has been a revolution in uh, artificial intelligence brought about mainly by deep learning, uh, which is, uh, for example, impacting computer vision dramatically, which means that today uh, computer vision is much, much better than what it was, let's say, five years ago or a decade ago. And the consequence of that is that the robots and the machines are able to see uh, precisely and to identify and recognize objects, to detect them, to localize them, and therefore uh, they, can, they can start to take precision action. So basically all the, all, all the technological advances on machine vision are enabling uh, robots to, yeah, to see the fruits, to see the weeds, to see the different types of crops, and to, to recognize them, to identify them, and to take some precision action. They say that they can see, they can recognize different crops and different fruits and so on. Then what? What can they actually do? 
Well, there are a number of varieties of robots uh, today being developed, and I think one of the more common ones is a weeding application. And the idea here is that you have a robot, uh, which could be autonomous, or you would have a machine vision-enabled implement, which would be tractor-pulled. And these robots or implements would have inside of them a, a series of computers, which uh, would see the weeds, as, as they were being moved or they were moving through the, through the field. Uh, they would identify them, they would localize them, and they would take some precision action to eliminate that particular uh, weed in that particular location. So this could be through uh, the precision spraying on that particular location, or it could be using some mechanical means, again, on that particular uh, location. And, and, and as you can immediately recognize, the consequence is that Instead of, for example, having to indiscriminately spray your chemicals and herbicides uh, throughout the field um, and, uh, you know, doing damage to the, uh, to the environment, uh, causing uh, collateral damage to, to your crops and, you know, reducing your yield a little bit, you are suddenly able to save a lot of chemicals and spray uh, or take action only where you need. And I think this is why we are saying that this revolution in, in computer vision is really enabling or accelerating, uh, I should say, accelerating the development of ultra-precision agriculture. So, Kashyap, what do we mean by ultra-precision? By precision, we mean that instead of managing the farm on, a, on, a, on a, you know, a, a, an entire plot basis, uh, you're bringing down your unit of management to an individual individual plant. And that is what we, what we mean by precision or ultra-precision. So instead of uh, managing the farm on a farm basis, you, you would be able to uh, manage the farm based on the needs of a specific plant or a specific uh, very, very small location. It, it's fascinating to uh, to the non-techie amongst us. These things have gone, they're not gimmicks or gadgets for the nerdy amongst us, are they now? Are, are they at the point of becoming part of daily life yet? Well, I think the journey will be long, uh, but I think there are no um, significant technological hurdles that would hold it back. I think one doesn't uh, require a radical um, innovation or, or some major breakthrough in order to uh, further this, this trend. I think one just needs to think about many, many incremental improvements, and I think there are many trends which would sustain these incremental improvements going forward. Uh, so for me, it is really a matter of time and not a question of when. And uh, and I think you know this is you know, a lot of the companies today have been around for five, six, seven years, and a lot of them are in the second or the third generation of their products. You know, today it is still very small in terms of how many robots are actually deployed uh, in the world. Uh, most of these robots uh, sales are, are very small. They are still, in many cases, not as productive as the incumbent method. Uh, but as I said, I think they have the wind in their sails, and uh, things will change uh, will change soon. Let's get to the, the nitty-gritty question that I know is on the mind of, of, of our listeners listening to this. Cost. These things are going to be expensive, aren't they? Well, it depends on the capability, but most likely in the beginning they will be expensive because you are essentially integrating a lot of compute power and, uh, and you know, vision technology and precision actuation and sometimes autonomous mobility technology uh, into into your robot. So uh, on, on a robot, you know, on a machine per, per machine basis, they would be more expensive. But in some cases, uh, one could be eliminating the the uh, the, uh, the number of operators or, or reduce the number of operators. Uh, that saves cost. 
Um, and I think what a lot of companies now recognize is that buyers may be re- reluctant to pay that upfront capital, especially when the technology is not absolutely 100% certain and when uh, there might be a risk of obsolescence down the road because the technology is changing so fast. So to counter that, what they're doing is they are proposing to offer their machines essentially as a service. So not selling an individual robot like you would sell a tractor, but instead using their robots uh, to uh, run the service. So, for example, become a weeding company or become a food picking company and then charge the farmers on the basis of the service performed in much the same way that the farmers are used to paying uh, their service providers today. Um, so instead of the farmers having, having to fund some capital investment, they would be, uh, they would be uh, you know, taking the budget out of the operational expenses. It comes with risk. I think the machines are not yet perfect. They require uh, sometimes expert operation. Uh, you know, they can have a lot of downtime, and uh, you need uh, expert engineers probably on site to, uh, uh, to fix them. So it makes sense for both parties, for the supplier and the buyer, to, to, to go with a service or a lease model or a combination of both. And also, I think one thing that is really interesting in this field is that when, uh, you know, the, the algorithms uh, that are used in, in, uh, in these robots actually get better the more data you have. So it is also in the interest of a lot of the suppliers to have access to actual field operations, to get more data into their, into their system so they can better their algorithms, and also to get more experience of actual in-field operations so that they can iron out a lot of the problems that, you know, the, the, the types of problems that you hinted at. And, uh, yeah, so I think at this stage you will find that a lot of business models are not the classical, you know, uh, machine sales, and instead uh, people are positioning themselves as, as, as providers of uh, service. How will this change going forward? I think it will change going forward. Uh, and, um, yeah, and as I said at the beginning, I think we are in it for the long term. And that's why in our forecast models, in our market assessment models, we are taking a 20-year view. And, of course, you know, 20 years is a long time, and nobody exactly knows what would happen within that timeline. But um, this is our assessment of the timescales uh, that are required for this technology to further mature and become much more widespread. It's a it's a fascinating area, and it's an area, as you say, that is inevitably going to play more of a part in the daily life of the farm as the years go on. Keshap, where can we find out more about this? You've produced a report on this through uh, ID Tech X. We have a market research report, which your audience can, can see on our website, uh, com. And if they go to this website, they get a very good understanding of all the uh, technology trends, of the status of the technology today, of the technology roadmap. Uh, they will understand uh, more about all the robots, uh, the prototypes and the products which are on the market, the players, the companies. And of course, they will have access to our market model, meaning that how many robots, uh, different types of robots would be deployed as a function of time in, in which kinds of fields and actions and your operations and so on. And that's available on your website, idtechx.com. Uh, Kasia Gafaraday, uh, Research Director at IDTechX, many thanks indeed for uh, s- some fascinating information. Thanks for joining us on the Farming Programme today. Pleasure. Thank you for uh, hosting me. Interesting stuff. Have you tried AI on your farm? How did you find it? I'd be interested to hear your experience. Do contact me via the website or the app and we'll get your thoughts on the subject. Now, Kit Dickinson's here from Openfield with a look at the markets and prices. Morning, Kit. Good morning, Steve. Relatively quiet week with sideways trading and little change on the week. We have traded 50p up and down on Liffey with currency largely unchanged and very thin volumes. In truth, we now just need to wait for the European harvest to start. 
and see how much truth are in all of the estimations that we have programmed in. There are lots of talk and predictions and we will soon see the reality when the UK combines start going. There have been some old crop sales this week coming forward, but on the whole it has been a generally quiet week. As we see more old crop come to the market, there are concerns over whether the consumer will be able to take the quantity of grain. With reduced outputs on the back of COVID-19, but a high price for old crop sales could mean a bottleneck going into domestic homes. On the back of this, we have seen some consumers buying wheat and rolling it into the following month. But this can only continue for so long, as we will soon be into August and needing homes for new crop wheat ourselves. Oilseed rape, with the rape lower on the motif, there has been a definite concern regarding the intake plans for Irith at harvest. Yesterday, they were bidding lower with the second option of Tilbury as a backup. Ultimately, we are guessing, as we may see some old crop next week, but it would be the traditional time of year for Irith to shut down for maintenance just before harvest. But it is a little unnerving if the biggest home in the UK is not open and are not even giving bids to the market. Moving on to barley this week, we have seen the first winter barley combined in Norfolk on some light land, but it is still too early to give an idea of yield or quality for the area. In Lincolnshire, the winter barley is turning quickly and some reports have said that combines will be going as early as the first weekend in July if the weather continues to be warm and dry. After the rain a couple of weeks ago, there have been reports of a second growth of barley where there wasn't enough moisture for the second germination after drilling. This could cause problems at harvest given the crop could be at different growth stages. Something to look out for. So moving on to prices this week for feed wheat, June 154 to 156. August 155 to 157, November 159 to 161, February 163 to 165, May 166 to 168. Milling wheat premiums are circa 24 to 26 pounds. Oilseed rate for June is 317 to 319 with no carry into August of the same price, 317 to 319. A good carry going forward to November, 327 to 329. February, 331 to 333. And May, 333 to 335. Feed barley for June is 114 to 116. August, 120 to 122. November, 127 to 129. February, 129 to 131. May, 131 to 133. Malting premiums are currently sample specific. And there are some bids on all crop beans of 200 to 205 X the farm. Many thanks as always, Kit. We'll see you next week. The Farming Programme, five-day forecast. Well, what an interesting few days we've had weather-wise. The hottest week of the year, then thunderstorms and some significant rain over the weekend. The coming week looks to be a bit more normal for a British summer. That is, unsettled, some strong winds, highs in the upper teens, but not much by way of rain until about Thursday. Today, winds will be from the southwest, around 21, 22 miles per hour, but gusting into the 30s. Some rain possible through the middle of the day and highs of 17 Celsius. On Monday and Tuesday, the wind eases off. It'll stay southwesterly, mostly dry, with highs of only 14 on Monday and 20 on Tuesday. Not an awful lot of sunshine either. 
On Wednesday, a little bit of rain's likely through the middle of the day. Winds are light and variable, mostly cloudy with highs in the upper teens. And on Thursday and Friday, we should see some rain, maybe five or six mil, and it's cooler and cloudy both days, with the wind veering round to the northeast. Speeds around 15 miles per hour, gusting up to the mid 20s on Thursday. Lighter and less gusty on Friday. Highs in the mid teens Celsius. Well, that's it for this week. We'll get an update on the sugar beet crop and plenty more from the world of agriculture next Sunday. I'm Steve Orchard. Stay safe and positive and have a good farming week.